Hi guys, another episode of our Theology and Coffee. Thank you for tuning in and we are hoping that you finish the session. So, God bless. Thank you. So this is episode number 7 uh, of the Reformed Systematic Theology from the book of Joel Beakey. And uh, in this episode, we're going to read and a little bit discuss this chapter in which uh, titled, Which Theology Do We Do? Part 2. Reformed Historical, Confessional, Theological, and Hermeneutical Perspectives. So last episode, we began to build a sense of theological identity from the ground up identifying our theology as Christian, Catholic, and Evangelical. In discussing Evangelical theology, we recognize that there are several families of confession within its boundaries. Therefore, we must be more specific for we intend to present Reformed theology. As late as the 18th century, the term Reformed, like Evangelical, could be used of all churches participating in the Reformation, including the Lutheran churches. However, it is now commonly used specifically to of the form of reform reformation christianity that originated in switzerland and became an international movement distinct from the followers of martin luther churches that call themselves reform imply that the church was originally formed by christ and his apostles according to the word of god then became deformed by false doctrines and corrupt practices until Christ reformed the church by his word and spirit. Wilhelmus A. Brackle said, and I quote, To distinguish the true church from all erroneous assemblies, we call ourselves reformed. And that is in reference to errors which permeated the church. These the church has cast out, departing from the Roman Catholic heresy by which she had been so long oppressed, and reforming the church according to the precepts of God's word. It should be noted that according to the Swiss reformers, even in its darkest days, the church did not cease from the earth, just as Christ has pro- had promised. Reformed Christianity has often been labeled Calvinism. This is understandable because of God- John Calvin's prominence in systematizing and defending Reformed doctrine, and today the label is so widespread as to be virtually unavoidable. However, we must reject any suggestions that we are mere followers of Calvin. Brackle represented Dutch Reformed thought when he wrote in 1700, and I quote, We acknowledge Calvin as a member of the true church. He has done much to promote the truth, but he is neither the head of the church nor the one who prescribed the rule for life and doctrine. We neither magnify nor lean upon man, end quote. Similar statements that limit Calvin's authority or deny his headship over the church may be found in French Reformed writers such as Pierre Dumoulin, Jean-Claude, and Pierre Jourdieu. I don't know if that's correct pronunciation though. Calvin did not originate the Reform movement in Switzerland. It started with Ulrich Swingli in Zurich about the same time as Luther began preaching against the false teachings of Rome and was advanced by Swingli's successor, Heinrich Bullinger. Calvin was only an eight-year-old boy in France when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg church door. When Calvin was converted as an adult, 
he was greatly influenced by older men such as Luther, Philip Melanchthon, Johannes Wenkolampidus, and Martin Buzer, and became one among several significant second-generation Reformed theologians such as Wolfgang Musculus and Peter Martyr Vermigli. Calvin was respected but did not reign as a theological monarch. Therefore, it is more accurate to refer to, refer to Reformed theology than to Calvinism. But we may use the latter term as popular shorthand. We will introduce the broad contours of Reformed theology from six perspectives, historical, confessional, theological, hermeneutical, polemical, and experiential. Reformed theology in historical perspective. Reformed theology grew out of the 16th century evangelical renewal in Europe that we refer to as the Reformation. After various attempts to reform the church according to the word of God by pre-Reformation, Augustinian theologians such as Thomas Bradwardin, John Wycliffe, and John Huss, the Reformation began when, by grace alone, Luther grasped justification by faith alone and began protesting against a sacramental system of man-made ritual and human merit. The Reformers objected to unbiblical teachings um, and practices in the church such as the papal abuses in theology and practice, including immoral conduct by church leaders and commercialized religion through a system of penance by which the church claimed to dispense grace offered for sale as indulgences. Second, the papal pretentiousness in the claims of the Bishop of Rome to apostolic, even messianic, authority. The cruel opposition of the popes to reformation eventually persuaded many reformers that the pope was none other than the Antichrist and the man of sin from 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 3 to 12. The third is the captivity of the word by the church withholding access to the Bible in the common language from lay people, subjecting its interpretation to the authority of bishops, adding to its contents with the Jewish apocrypha, and displacing it, its preaching with formalism. Ev- elevation of monasticism with its vows of celibacy poverty and obedience as a higher religious life as opposed to the biblical spirituality of ordinary vocations and the priesthood of believers. Usurp mediation ascribed to Mary and the saints as well as the automatic transfusion of grace in the sacraments versus salvation by, by faith in Christ alone. And lastly, reliance upon good works as the means to obtain and in some sense, to merit God's grace, which is the poison of semi-Pelagianism. Pelagianism, sorry. The opposition of the reformers to Roman Catholic errors crystallized into the five solas that were discussed in the last chapter, each correcting an error in Roman Catholic teaching, as uh, we summarized below. Or in the Reformation teachings, we say scripture alone or sola scriptura and that counters the Roman Catholic teaching of scripture and tradition. In Reformation teaching, we say grace alone or sola gratia 
and it opposes the Roman Catholic teaching of grace and human merit. In Reformation teaching, we say, and we believe Christ alone or solus Christus. In the Roman Catholic teaching, we oppose the Christ and Mary and the saints. In Reformation teachings, we say faith alone or sola fide. In the Roman Catholic teaching, we oppose the faith and works. So, in uh, Reformation teachings, we say glory to God alone, soli Deo Gloria. And uh, which we oppose the Roman Catholic teachings, glory to God and the saints. The 16th century Reformation split in the 1520s into the three main branches, the Lutheran churches, the Reformed churches, and the Anabaptists. As we have noted, the Reformed Reformed churches arose as a distinct branch of evangelical Christianity in Switzerland with the preaching of Swingley and Bullinger. Later, Calvin established Geneva as a model Reformed city. Unlike Lutheranism, which concentrated itself in Germany and Scandinavia, Reformed Christianity quickly became a broadly international movement, spreading to Germany, Hungary, Poland, the Netherlands, France, Scotland, and England. The English Reformers were much influenced by Luther at first, but during the short reign of Edward VI and the long reign of Elizabeth I, a moderate form of Reformed theology became increasingly dominant in the Church of England. In addition, from the 1560s to the end of the 17th century, the Puritan movement pursued a more thorough reformation of preaching, worship, and daily life. Some Puritans separated from the Church of England, and some of those separatists formed Baptist churches that continued to hold most of the theological tenets of early Reformed theologians. Many people of Reformed persuasion emigrated from England to the British colonies in North America, mingling with others of like mind from Scotland, the the Netherlands, France, and Germany, often fleeing religious persecutions in in their homelands. John Brandt estimated that in 1776, two-thirds of the population of what would become the United States was affiliated with churches espousing Reformed theology. Oh, wow. From centers in continental Europe, Britain, Britain, (laughs) and the United States of America, Reformed Christianity has spread during the last two, two and a half centuries to all nations all over the world. Amazing. Wow, America, what happened? Okay, Reformed Theology in Confessional Perspective. In the last chapter, we argued that evangelical theology is confessional theology, specifically with respect to the confessions of churches rooted in the Reformation. This principle is exemplified in the Reformed churches. Reformed theologians hold that confessions have only a provisional character, since they reflect the limited insights of mere men, their authority is derived and must always be subordinate to Scripture, which possesses intrinsic divine authority. Nevertheless, the Reformed churches recognize that confessions make a valuable contribution to the church tasks of worship, witness, teaching, discipline, and defense. In the 16th and 17th centuries, Reformed churches produced a plethora of uh, confessions and catechisms bearing witness to their faith and providing for the nurture of their people. 
since Reform Christianity is an international movement with no geographical or ecclesiastical center. Churches of various nations have written more than 100 confessional statements to testify to the diversity but essential unity of the Reformed faith. Of the many Reformed confessions, seven stand out as the most influential. Three are known among the Dutch Reformed churches as the forms of unity. First, the Belgic Confession of Faith, 1561, was written by the martyr and pastor Guido de Bres. The word Belgic, or Latin Belgica, refers to the whole of the Low Countries, both modern-day Belgium and the Netherlands, and thus fittingly describe a Dutch confession. It was translated from Latin into Dutch in 1562, warmly received by Reformed churches in the Netherlands, revised by the Synod of Antwerp, 1562, and further revised and adopted by the Synod of Dort. 1618-1619. Second, the Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, was written primarily by Zacharius Ursinus and Caspar Olivanius. According to the commission of the elector Frederick III, ruler of the German princely state known as Palatinate, it was accepted by German and Dutch Reformed churches and has won respect around the world. Its wide appeal may be illustrated by its adoption by Hercules Collins for use by English particular Baptist Christians. Like Paul's epistles to the Romans, the Catechism has three main parts dealing with the experience of sin and misery, questions 3 to 11, deliverance in Christ applied by faith, questions 12 to 85, and Christian living as a life of true gratitude, questions 86 to 129. Its opening question and answer shows its experiential and personal tone. Sample Question number one, what is thy only comfort in life and death? Answer That I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, had fully satisfied for all my sins, and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Ye, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and makes me sincerely willing and ready, henceforth to live unto him. The third, the Canons of Dor, report the decisions of the International Reform Synod that met in the city of Dortrich in 1618 and 1619 to answer the five points of protest or remonstrances against Reformed doctrine raised by the Dutch remonstrants or followers of James Arminius. The Arminians asserted that first, God chose whom he would save based on his foresight of who would choose to follow Christ. Second, Christ died to redeem all humanity. Third, the human will is not entirely enslaved to sin and can choose Christ. Fourth, sinners may effectually resist God's grace. And fifth, a child of God may fall away totally and finally to damnation. The Synod answered each of these objections under five heads, resulting in a document that does not teach the Reformed faith comprehensively, but only summarizes the Synod's response to Arminianism. 
we will consider Dort's five points of doctrine in more detail when addressing the polemical perspective in the next episode or chapter. The fourth confession of note arose from the Swiss churches. The Second Helvetic Confession in 66 initially was written by Bullinger as a personal confession and then was adopted later for the use of the Reformed churches. It was adopted by the Swiss cities of Berni, Biel, Geneva, Mulhausen, Skofhausen, and St. Gaul as well as the cantons of Wiersons. Rather than consisting of brief, condensed statements, this confession is actually a manual of Reformed theology. It is still used today by the Hungarian Reformed churches. The last three confessions we considered were here were produced by the English and Scottish the theologians of the Westminster Assembly that began meeting in 1643. Therefore, they are known collectively as the Westminster Standards. First, the Westminster Confession of Faith asserts a Reformed and Presbyterian view of the Christian faith and draws from over a century of Reformed reflection, especially the Irish Articles of James Usher. The Confession remains a high point of Reformed theological formulation, beginning with an unparalleled statement of the Bible's necessity, canon, divine authority, self-authentication, sufficiency, clarity, inspiration by God, interpretation, and supremacy over all other religious authorities. The Confession was amended and adapted for use by Congregational Churches as a Savoy Declaration in 1658, which was then modified by particular Baptist theologians and adopted as a Second London Baptist Confession in 1677 1689 Next, the Westminster Shorter Catechism in 1647 summarizes the teachings of the Westminster Confession and the principles of God's moral law as found in the Ten, Ten Commandments in concise, crisp question and answer suitable for teaching and memorization. It opens with perhaps the most famous statement of Reformed theology ever made, and I quote, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever." End quote. Its clear, condensed form may be illustrated in its definition of saving repentance. Repentance unto life is the saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, dot with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. The Assembly's Catechism was printed for many generations as part of the famous New England Primer. It was adapted in 1693 by Benjamin Keach for use by Baptists. Finally, the Westminster Larger Catechism in 1647 presents the same system of doctrine as the Confession of Faith and the Shorter Catechism but elaborated in much more detail. Its exposition of the Ten Commandments provides an expansive Reformed understanding of the biblical ethics. While not as well known or as frequently used as the Shorter Catechism, the Larger Catechism contains a wealth of doctrine and should not be neglected. The Reformed Confessions display the remarkable unity of Reformed theology among its diverse adherents. 
Today, a growing number of the denominations confer and collaborate in the North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council. On the basis of their commitment to the Bible as the inerrant Word of God in its teaching, teachings as set forth in the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the Shorter and Larger Catechisms. Reformed theology is theology done by members of churches holding to one or more of the Reformed Confessions. Grounding Reformed theology in these confessions makes it a discipline or activity of the confessing church and not merely an individual academic exercise. Cornelius Van Til explained, and I quote, Once the standards or dogmas of the church have been accepted, it goes without saying that a theologian who writes a work on systematics will write it in accordance with the interpretation given in those standards. To say that this hampers his freedom is to say that he has not himself freely adopted these creeds as a member of the church. A theologian is not forced to write from a certain confessional perspective, but so long as he serves as a theologian of the church, he is obligated by his own commitment to teach in accordance with the truth as confessed by his church. Pantil continued, To interpret in accordance with these standards does not mean that one ignores the scriptures. It must be shown over and over again that the standards are based on the scriptures. In addition to this, the systematic theologian has to go beyond the standards to see whether he can possibly find a more specific formulation of truths already spoken of in the standards and whether he can find a formulation of truths of scriptures not yet spoken of in the standards. Hmm. Reformed Theology in Theological Perspective Historians and theologians have often stumbled in attempts to identify a central dogma in a theological system upon which all others depend. In reality, any doctrine must be revealed in God's Word in order for it to be worthy of our faith. We cannot derive our theology logically from any central dogma. Furthermore, God's revelation in the Bible has a richness that defies any narrow definition of a center. However, we may attempt to capture the spirit of a theological system in a particular truth that pervades shapes and animates it. Some theologians have stated that Reformed theology revolves around the doctrine of predestination, though its view of predestination distinguishes Reformed theology from other non-Augustinian systems, predestination does not dominate its entire perspective. Calvin did not treat the doctrine of election until more than halfway through his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Even then, Calvin gave more pages to the topic of prayer than predestination. By this criterion, then, we would have to judge that Calvin was not a Reformed theologian. However, predestination does not give us a clue to the deepest impulse of Reformed thought. The heart of Reformed theology is the knowledge of the triune God. For this reason, Reformed theology is often called God-centered theology. Its starting point is the starting point of the Bible. In the beginning, God. It rejoices in our Lord's statement, This is life eternal, that they may not, might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. 
John 17.3. Benjamin Warfield said, The Calvinist, in a word, is the man who sees God, God in nature, God in history, God in grace. Everywhere he sees God in his mighty stepping, everywhere he feels the working of his mighty arm, the throbbing of his mighty heart. The magnificent obsession of the mature Reformed Christian is to know God through Jesus Christ. By God's grace, our eyes have been opened to see God shining in Christ, and what, is, and what we see is glory. One of the great effects of the Reformation was the restoration of singing the Psalms, and Psalms, through rich in many themes and emotions, redound with glory of God. The marrow of Reformed theology is the sovereignty of God not an impersonal fatalism, but the personal sovereignty of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the knowing, wise, and loving sovereignty of our triune Savior. This is the reason why the Westminster Shorter Catechism couples glorifying God with enjoying Him. In so doing, it echoes a catechism composed by Calvin a century earlier. And I quote, What is the chief end of human life? To know God. Why do you say that? Because He created us and placed us in this world to be glorified in us. And it is indeed right that our life, of which He Himself is the beginning, should be devoted to His glory. Nothing worse can happen to a man than to live without God. What is the true and right knowledge of God? When we know Him in order that we may honor Him. How do we honor Him aright? We put our reliance entirely on Him by serving Him in obedience to His will, by calling upon Him in all our need, seeking salvation and every good thing in Him, and acknowledging with heart and mouth that all our good proceeds from Him. End quote. Wow. From the theological perspective then, Reformed theology breathes the spirit of divine glory and finds nothing so savory or enjoyable as God Himself. Hmm. And so we move to the next uh, Reformed theology in hermeneutical perspective. Hermeneutics, the science of biblical interpretation, is not merely a collection of literary, literary and linguistic skills, but a kind of spiritual wisdom. Reformed theology makes us wise in interpreting the Bible by informing us of one of its structural principles, God's faithfulness to His covenants. It may be argued that Reformed theology is covenant theology, not because covenant it, not because covenant is its greatest truth and central focus, only God is that, but because covenant is the framework that shapes all biblical revelation. Robert Rollock said, All the word of God appertains to some covenant for God speaks nothing to man without the covenant the word translated as covenant occurs 284 times in the Old Testament Hebrew berit and 33 times in the New Testament Greek diatiki the Bible recognizes a plurality of covenants that God made with his people at various points in history Redemptive history is structured by God's covenant with Noah in Genesis 9, His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis 15, uh, verse 18, Genesis 7, 
17 verse 1 to 21. His covenant with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, his covenant with David regarding the kingdom, and his new covenant in Christ. All of these particular covenants are only embodiments or manifestations of one of eternal covenant, the covenant of grace. In cooperation with the discipline of biblical theology, Reformed systematic theology must discern the location of each text of the Bible with respect to the covenants that precede and inform it. Thus, covenant theology, when done rightly, provides a sensitive hermeneutic for discovering how all Scripture is profitable for teaching and training God's people today. While recognizing the plurality of God's covenantal administrations in redemptive history, Reformed theology also acknowledges the profound unity that binds them together as one covenant of grace. From the covenant with Abraham through the new covenant in Christ, God's promise to take a people for his own and to give himself to them as their God remains the same. Each redemptive covenant builds upon previous covenants and paves the way for greater fulfillment. For example, God's covenant with Israel at Sinai grows out of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promises partly fulfilled in the nation's deliverance and exodus from Egypt. Therefore, though the Bible can speak of plural covenants, it may also sum them up with a singular covenant. The fulcrum on which all promises hinge as has always been Christ. The promises of the covenant are rooted in an arrangement or compact made by God before time began, when no one existed to give or receive promises except the three persons of the Trinity. Titus 1, verses, verse 1, verse 2. The covenantal hermeneutic of Reformed theology offers great insight into how all the promises of God point to Christ and apply to His church today. Reformed theology also recognizes the biblical contrast between law and gospel, a contrast that reveals two covenants, one of which puts sinners in bondage and the others of which produces freedom by God's Spirit. Strictly speaking, this is not simply the contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament for law and gospel are present in both. Although the Lord restated the law and its curses in the context of the gracious covenant He made with Israel, the moral law is deeply rooted in human nature. <clears throat> and its finest and its first covenantal form appears in God's word to Adam in the Garden of Eden, forbidding disobedience and threatening death. Reformed theologians have variously called this arrangement with Adam a covenant of life, a legal covenant, a covenant of nature or natural covenant, a covenant of creation or a covenant of works. Okay? As Paul explains in Romans 5.12-21, understanding both, both God's covenant with Adam and the implication of Adam's sin lays the foundation for understanding God's covenant in Christ and the implications of Christ's obedience. Therefore, the covenantal hermeneutic of Reformed theology is crucial for a proper interpretation and defense of the gospel of Christ. So in conclusion, in summary, Reformed theology may be viewed from a historical perspective as a movement of Christian churches away from the errors of medieval 
Roman Catholicism toward a consistently evangelical direction. To be reformed is to be part of a historical international gospel-driven movement. It can also be viewed from a confessional perspective as a system of truths summarized in the doctrinal standards of various reformed churches. To be reformed is to be committed to hold fast the form of sound words of apostolic truth. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13 it can also be viewed a theological perspective as a view of life dominated by the glory of the sovereign loving to you and god to be reformed is to fear the lord and live a god-centered life in order to glorify and enjoy him forever reformed theology may be viewed from a hermeneutical perspective as an approach to the Bible that recognizes the unfolding covenant of grace that structures God's revelation through history. To be reformed is to rest one's faith in the promises of the faithful covenant Lord. And so, as we near the close of this chapter from the book of Joel Beakey, we will examine, as it says here, I'm just reading it, You'll examine Reformed Theology from polemical and experiential perspectives in the next chapter or episode. However, before we do, it, it is right for the reader to pause and ask, Am I Reformed? Though participating as a member in a Reformed Church is essential to Reformed Christianity, this is not a question of denominational affiliation. Rather, it is a question of whether you are a Christian Reformed according to the Word of God and, um, and use this perspective to examine yourself. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for reaching the end of our episode. And uh, I wish you all um, best and uh, God bless. Thank you.